Who needs an agency when brands want content, not ads? And disruption comes, disruption goes, but human desire is forever. This is episode 14 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom A. Sacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. I'm Tom A. Sacker. Who needs an agency when brands want content, not ads, Tom? Indeed. Yeah, this is from an Ad Age article, and the title is Kids TV is Pushing into Content Marketing. Nickelodeon will pitch its branded content arm during its upfront. You can almost he- hear the agencies chill from here. Hmm. <laughs> Nickelodeon is formalizing its Consumer Insights Partnership Marketing and Multimedia Services under the banner Nickelodeon Inside Out Solutions. In other words, Tom, we'll take care of all your needs. Nobody else has to. The group is designed to connect marketers to Nickelodeon's TV and digital channels, social footprint, consumer products business, and on-the-ground marketing experiences. The division will create customized content in gaming apps as well as clients uh, help clients tap into Nickelodeon's social media networks, uh, the spokesperson says. This is not new, obviously. This is not unique to Nickelodeon. Nickelodeon rival Disney Channel is also formalizing its branded content arm during this year's upfront pitches to advertisers, dubbed Disney Co-op. The service, which started earlier this year, is tasked with creating short-form content for advertising and pushing it out uh, over social media. The division will predominantly focus on creating content tailored to moms rather than kids. Tom, what's your take on this? Well, the first thing I wondered was why the subhead of that article wasn't Nickelodeon will pitch its in-house ad agency during its upfront. <laughs> well, could that be a little threatening? <laughs> well, yeah. Well, it was an ad age, right? So, yeah, you're absolutely right. But, but if you think about it, what is an ad age after all? I mean, Wikipedia mm-hmm. defines it as a service-based business dedicated to creating, planning, and handling advertising and sometimes other forms of promotion for its mm-hmm. clients. Okay, so that leads us to the word advertising. So then you go to Wikipedia. It says advertising is a form of marketing communication used to persuade an audience to take or continue some action. And Mm -hmm. what's branded content? Mm -hmm. It's a form of advertising. In fact, the industry calls it native advertising, which is a really strange term for advertising that's pretending that it isn't advertising. I mean, it really should be called something like foreign or unnatural advertising. Mm -hmm. But this isn't, this isn't anything that's not going on in a very, very quick, considered, and widespread way throughout the media industry. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And in fact, I don't know that this is even so much native advertising as it is just plain advertising. It's just a question of who's assisting you with the creation and development and placing of that advertising, right? Yeah. I, listen, here's the thing, the way I see it anyway— It's getting more and more difficult for marketers to connect with overloaded, distracted, skeptical consumers. So what are they doing? They search for and buy ideas. And frankly, they don't care where those ideas come from. They can come from agencies, media companies, Hollywood, tech firms. It really doesn't matter. Just give us the ideas, help us connect and reach the right audience and help us do it in an engaging way, which is intended really today to subtly influence people, not to overtly persuade them. Yeah, it seems to me that in years past, it was a question of who has the expertise in communication, right? 
because the agencies had that expertise. They were the folks who knew how to put audiences together with brands. They had the communication expertise. Now, based on pieces like this and the trends that you're describing among brands, what we're, what we're experiencing, I think, is the emphasis is shifting from communication expertise to expertise with particular audiences. In other words, if you have an audience and you know that audience really well and there's something quirky and specific about that audience, you are the agency. You can be the agency because no, no agency knows your audience better than you do, right? You got, and, you got it. And that's and true you know of Nickelodeon. What? It's true yep. of, of Disney. It's also, by the way, it's something MTV has been, do, MTV has been doing for years. Yeah, listen, you're right. And, and here's the thing. If once, you're, you know, when you're starting to work on the creative or, or what the approach is, what the communication vehicle is, if you find that, hey, you know what, we really can't put together uh, this this video the way we need to do it because it just we just don't have the in-house talent to do that as an in-house agency, sub it out. That's what, you know, they'll just go to either an agency or to a, or a video production firm. You know, there, there are so many talented people out there today mm-hmm. that you can find these people to do the work you need them to do. Yeah, in, indeed you can. And it, it, it seems to me that as this work gets pushed out, the question's going to be, well, you know, where does the trend line go? And I, the trend line clearly, I think in my mind, is going towards the more expertise you have with audiences and the more specific your audience, the more you have the capability of converting that into a language that brands understand and becoming the agency. Now they, see, they're, they're, it used to be, that the people with the particular expert, expertise were the ones that are that what people were looking for, and the expertise was always some some type of communications uh, medium or platform or technology, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, they're great at film. These people are great at this. Now, what these people are saying is, wait a minute, what's really the competitive challenge for us? It's to find, reach, and speak directly to audiences. Mm-hmm. So if we can find someone that has expertise in that, that's the direction we should head. One of the examples of this that we've talked about is the is ABC's so-called all-Apple episode of Modern Family. This is the episode of Modern Family produced entirely on Apple iOS devices. That's amazing. It is amazing. And, I've, I, and what people need to know about this, first of all, is that this isn't some native, big native ad, from what I understand, unless they're absolutely lying about the origin of this, <laughs> that this is something that grew from kind of the organic interest of the producers and creators of Modern Family with Apple products and their desire to kind of try something that was happening in their own households and extending it to the show. And I heard an interview with the with one of the producers about this, and he said, we had to explain it to the cast. They didn't really understand it. They gradually got it. And here's the funny part. To do this in a way that sounds almost easy because it's using off-the-shelf devices that we all have, it turned out to take a number of additional months hmm. of, of uh, technology work for them to actually edit this together and make it look as easy and as organic as it actually is. But this is a perfect illustration of, uh, you know, here's, here's what amounts to a 30-minute ad for Apple products, right? Well, yeah, and if you think about it, if, if when you're sitting down creatively thinking about your content, whatever that happens to be, then the question, if you're going to have your own agency in-house, if you're going to appeal to marketers and say that you can speak directly to audiences, that affects how you think 
about crafting content as well because you want it to be seamless. You don't want to layer it on top of something, you know? Product placements and video games, think about it, in movies. That, that's exactly what's going on there. How effective are those tactics, in your view? <sighs> you know... <laughs> and it, I, asked that, it, I asked that. Let me explain why I asked. Go because, ahead. you know, looking at some of these product placements in movies, we saw, you know, the Oscar movies and some product placements in the Oscar movies. Having seen a lot of those movies, I didn't remember a single one of those product placements. I, I know what you're saying. And listen, a lot of, a lot of it has to do with um, uh, whether or not you can identify with the, the character, the protagonist, and, and with the product. If you can make that connection, I guarantee you during the airing of 24 that a lot of people went out and bought that black truck that Jack Bauer was mm -hmm. driving around. You mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. They saw it, they identified with it, they, they wanted to feel like that. And and it you know it was it was not overt. I mean you know that he's driving this this particular brand of vehicle. In other cases, you know, like oh, in the background, there's a beer bottle sitting there that mm. you may not have even noticed. I, you know, I don't know. You're right, Mark. What does it really do? <laughs> it's almost like an inside joke. It seems to me. And it, it, yep, that counts as marketing. Let's all high five. Well, now that now, if you think about it, though, you you know, you, if you see episodes of Doctor House, and and House is some mm -hmm. kind of creative, brilliant madman, diagnostician, physician, and you see him flipping open his Apple MacBook, that's going to send a signal to you about those products. Yes, the key part of what you just said, if you see him flipping open, is is the key <laughs> part of that phrase. You are listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. Disruption comes and goes, but human desire is forever. Tom, this is from really a, a, an awesome piece by the often awesome, and we've used him on the podcast before, Michael Wolf from USA Today. And the title is Disruption is Cheap, Cravings are Profitable. <laughs> Here's some of what it says. The recent study by Credit Suisse that sin businesses, most notably tobacco and alcohol, have since the beginning of the 20th century outperformed every other business sector is a bracing reminder of what is constant in this time of radical change. Or put another way, it's not disruption that wins the race, but habituation, serving and understanding basic human impulses and needs. This is a teaching moment type of revelation, particularly for the media and tech businesses where high valuations go to the new and next instead of to the fixed and proven. Television, for instance, is habituating. Music, too, is hard to do without. Even books stand up. And yet, all of these businesses are generally looked at as low-value forms. They're being disrupted or even put to shame, not just by new distribution methods, but by new behaviors that are, in theory, changing the very nature of these old dependencies. And then he goes on to what I think is the nub of the piece. The problem with technology is that it changes so quickly. The fact is, uh, the fact that we can't imagine what comes next and does not show the strength does not show the strength of social media, for example, but its limitations because it represents and here's the nub functionality, not need. There will always be something better, always be something more functional. Only a true believer or an overly optimistic investor would bet that it isn't fleeting. It's far less likely that we can do without traditional media and the classic forms of entertainment and distraction. Social media is easy. Comedy, Tom, is hard. Oh, it sure is. We've been trying, haven't we? Listen, I understand. <laughs> I understand the point he's trying to make about mm -hmm. desire being the name of the marketplace game. In fact, I, I teach this very same concept. Yes. 
I'm having a tough time here because I know he's a smart guy. So, so I, you know, I, I started thinking about, and I don't understand his use of this word habituation because I was taught that habituation is a diminished response to a repeated stimulus. You know, it's like when you, <laughs> no, a tuning out, like how pedestrians in New York, they tune out the smell or the sound of honking cabs. They become habituated to it. They don't notice it anymore. So there's a certain taking for, you know, I made this point to somebody previously who said, you know, folks don't realize how important radio is in their lives for the anywhere from 60 to 90% of everyone who listens to it. And I said, well, you know, they take it for granted. It's part of, it's like saying, I take for granted the fact that the light switch works when I turn it on. I, to, to take some, something for granted is part of habit. It's not to say it's not important, right? No, I understand the habit. Listen, serving and understanding basic human impulses and desires, I don't see that as habituation. You're right. I, if he's talking about creating habits, now that's a, that's a different story. And I'll tell you what, that's a real dilemma because listen what happens here. When, while companies are trying to get customers to form purchase and use habits around their products, right? Mm -hmm. That's a good thing. But while they're doing that, other companies are busy innovating to try to draw those very customers away from those habits. So that's a bad thing. It's, it's, it's really interesting if you think about it. And, and his point about everything being, you know, about fleeting, you know, oh, it's fleeting, mm -hmm. right? Only a true believer would bet that it isn't fleeting. Everything is fleeting today. He mentions tobacco. Okay, let's take a look at tobacco. I saw a study recently that showed that more teenagers are now trying e-cigarettes than mm -hmm. regular cigarettes, than tobacco. And that mm -hmm. e-cigarettes are shifting away the sales from convenience stores to sales in online and specialty shops, like these vape shops. Well, and isn't that an, an illustration of part of what's nested in one of his points when he talks about the difference between functionality and need. Because there, it's the functionality of a cigarette, but it's the need associated with what's in the tobacco, which That's you it. can get through either mechanism, right? Right, okay, so he's confused then. Because, yes. because there is a difference between goals and means. The goals aren't going away. The means are, music isn't going away, but you heard, and I did too, that Starbucks is not gonna sell CDs anymore. Right? Right. So that, that means of getting music, that's changing. It's not what people, you know, it's not what they want. It's about how they prefer to receive it. Yes, and, and he kind of alludes to that here when he says, and yet certainly for music and print, this, the specter of the new and novel has resulted in those industries all but admitting defeat. The music business sold cheap to iTunes and streaming services. Print capitulated to Google. And I'm thinking... Well, what would you have us do? If I'm a newspaper and I'm watching 40% of my, my audience drift away to other platforms, if I'm watching 40% of my revenue drift away to other platforms, what would you have me do? Yeah. <laughs> what is this flag you want me to plant in the, in the sand? What is this flag? Listen, I understand what he's saying. If you think about it, if there were no laws against collusion... <laughs> Then they could all got together and said, okay, this is the deal we're going to make in order for our content to be available. But there are laws against that. And as soon as some people start jumping on it and start pulling all those digital eyeballs away or streaming, then what, 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 what is everyone else going to do, to your point? You're going to sit and hope? I think, I think what he, the point that he's not quite making is that it's not that many of these things altogether disappear necessarily. It's just that 
as they diminish, they make room for the new, but the fact that they diminish doesn't mean they disappear, and we should give things credit for continuing to exist. He goes on here, and yet the basic forms of entertainment and connection remain the same. We certainly understand this when it comes to sports. And two, more people than ever spend more time watching television, although I would add, not on the boxes in the living that's room. That's right, that's right. E-books, he says, have suddenly appeared to plateau. Real books, it seems, satisfy a more basic urge to hold the physical word. I actually looked that up, and it does seem e-books are plateauing, but real books likewise are plateauing. That's so it. That's <laughs> one is really making room for the other. So when he says, if you have a product with a proven ability to satisfy basic human needs, just keep making it. Well... Uh, yes and no, right? Yeah, I don't know. Listen, if you're not experimenting with the how, then you're in trouble. I read a statistic recently. It was amazing to me. 71% of companies that went public last year were unprofitable. <laughs> unprofitable. I mean, that's almost as many as the year the dot-com bubble burst. I wow. think there was 80% of the companies with IPOs had no profits. So listen, now maybe they're all working on their product market fit that's what they call to try right. to find desire and fulfill it and that's good you know ready fire aim and all that minimal viable product jazz mm -hmm. but discovering and fulfilling desire in this marketplace and doing it in a unique and motivating way is much more nuanced and much more difficult than most people can possibly imagine <laughs> i'm telling you <laughs> All right, it's time for rants and raves. I think we've already been ranting and raving, but what do you have for us in the category today, Tom? All right, now I don't even know what to do with this. I said, how, what should I categorize this? Is this a rant, a rave? We, or? We've both got ones that are uncategorizable this yeah, week, I but can't, I'm interested. I, I was gonna, yeah, I thought maybe I'd retire over this one. This is how weird <laughs> this is. Now, seriously, this media and marketing stuff is getting weird, even for me, and I'm pretty weird. So I'm skimming a piece titled... Viewability's elephant in the room. Will advertisers pay more? So I said, what the? So I, this is now according to a Digiday article. The crux of the issue is this. Get ready. Publishers of online media want advertisers to pay more money for digital ads that are viewable, <laughs> that, a, that a consumer can actually see on his computer or tablet I or phone. I saw this. I saw this piece. Go ahead. Okay, but the advertisers, they think that's unfair, that they shouldn't have to pay more for viewable. Now, I swear to God, Mark, I scroll back up to make sure I wasn't reading something from The Onion. I get back down, and I'm thinking about this. Now, we're not talking about paying more if someone clicks an ad or if someone who clicks something purchases something. We're actually discussing whether an advertiser should pay more money because people can actually see the ad. I want you to imagine this now. Because I thought about this. I said, oh, wait a minute. I've got a brilliant idea. I take a bunch of billboards and I place them behind trees on stretches of highway. And now if you turn your head at precisely the right time while driving, you'll be able to see the ad for at least a second. And that's how they define viewable. So then I'll go out and I'll get marketers somehow to put ads on those billboards which probably isn't going to be really too hard at all because I'm going to give them really low ad rates. I mean, after all, there's trees in front of all these billboards. Right. But then if a storm knocks down some trees, I'm going to go back to them and see if I can get them to pay more money because now the billboards are more viewable. That's right. 
That's right. Mark. I don't know what the hell people are talking about anymore. I think I think the way I read it is <laughs> they they it's not that they not only don't they want to pay more for what's viewable, they want to make sure they're paying less for what isn't viewable. Not Le- zero. <laughs> I know less. Just what? less. Okay, that makes sense. That's my, that's my, I, I don't know, is it a rant? I know, it's, it's a both? rant or a rave. I've got the same situation. I've got two for you today, and they both kind of fit in that, that crevice between rant and rave. The first one is an illustration, this is in, actually, last week I went viral. You don't know this. Uh-oh. But I went viral for the first time, really viral, and I'm puzzled by it. I wrote a piece, uh, as we all know, <laughs> Leonard Nimoy passed away last week. So I wrote a little piece on Movie Pilot, that Boston, platform we Boston talked about. Boston guy, before. by the way, you know that, right? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, I born thought he in was Boston. from. I thought I'd I, throw that in there. I thought he was. I, I, <laughs> I thought he was from another planet, but I could be wrong. <laughs> so, Boston's another planet right now, believe me. <laughs> I wrote this piece called "Missing Leonard Nimoy Is Only Logical." Short little piece, dashed it off in 15 minutes, posted on Movie Pilot. Well, the editorial team of Movie Pilot picked it up. Uh, put it on their front page, and before you know it, the thing went nuts. As of today, it has more than 4,000 reads, which is a lot of reads, and it has more than 10, it has almost 11,000 shares. Now, that's a lot of shares. You would agree, right? Yeah, that's a smart title, though. I've gone viral. Um, So now, let's just assess this for let's let's think about this for a second. First of all, let's assess the fact that it has more than twice as many shares as it does reads. (laughs) <laughs> so <laughs> so people are sharing this without reading it early on it had three times as many shares as read so evidently the, the they're not sharing it because they enjoyed it so much they're sharing as you put it they're sharing the title the title so they're saying not i like this read this but see if you vibe with this title because it reflects my feeling there you go um, which is very strange. Now, so I went viral to the tune of, you know, more than 10,000, 11,000 shares. How has this changed my life, Tom? I reflected on this. <laughs> well, who knows, so I, right? <laughs> so, no, I've, I've actually, the fact is it hasn't changed my life at all. And that's what I reflected on. And I thought, okay, so was I famous for 15 minutes in the Warholian sense? No. I, maybe I was famous for 15 seconds. And then I thought, no, maybe I was famous for the length of a of a duration of a click <laughs> or a share. I said, no, because they're not sharing the piece. They're not sharing me. They're sharing my title. That's right. <laughs> so it's not my fame at all, not even for the length of a share. It's Leonard Nimoy's fame. It's Movie Pilot's fame since the traffic accrues and the share, frankly, accrues to Movie Pilot, not to me. So I thought, well, I'm just window dressing for the share. I'm in the way of the share. I'm that, you know, tree in front of the billboard you just referenced <laughs> of, where, of this share. And so here's my, okay, Warhol <laughs> said in the future everybody's going to be famous for 15 minutes. Here's my own spin on Warhol for the next uh, 50 years. In the future, every article will be a selfie because only you will know you wrote it. <laughs> so, no, I don't know. I, I think you see. I don't think you're thinking deeply enough about this. What you should do is <laughs> Who you can should think more deeply than that. <laughs> you should run some little Google ads. Yeah. That says, "I write headlines for blogs, blog posts," <laughs> and then you can prove how good you are by showing them how many you know shares you got. 
That's so true and so sad. It occurred to me that the only way for me to have any of my own personal brand, as we like to say, associated with this article is for me to build up a following substantial enough on somebody else's platform, MoviePilot, that these people follow me for the things I write. Otherwise, they're just tracking the title wherever it goes. Really, really amazing. So that's the first one. I have a second one for you that is likewise impossible to categorize. This one's from a site called uh, Kotaku, and it's the title is How Video Game Breasts Are Made and Why They Can Go So Wrong. Now, there's a title that <laughs> now, people are going to click on. <laughs> there are 271,000 people who've read this. And, you know, this is in the category of things I didn't know were wrong. Here's the, the way the article opens. Breasts swing, they sag, they flop, they can move. Over the years, many games have tried to emulate the way breasts behave. I like that term, behave. <laughs> they have a even, mind of their own. <laughs> there's even a term for it. Quote, breast physics. Again, I didn't know this existed. Wow. If you've played games that have breast physics, you've probably seen how uncommon it is for games to show breasts that move like what they actually are. Bags of fat affected by gravity. How to take the fun out of it. Instead, it's more likely for a game to depict breasts as helium balloons that have minds of their own. And then this breast, this breast, this article goes See into... See what's happening right now I, to you? <laughs> <laughs> this article, breast, is, is going into exorbitant length. I would argue far too much length, unless I have absolutely nothing to do <laughs> about this problem, including the history of, uh, of, of breast physics. For example, there was a game called Dead or Alive, and here's from the article. One of the big selling points for the latest game, Dead or Alive, according to the market at least, is the new engine, which allows players to adjust the breast physics on their characters. (laughs) It's it's one of the drawing points, and it goes, here's the best part of the piece, though. One developer, who I'll call Alex, quote-unquote, because they didn't want to be identified by their own name, use of the term there suggesting that we're, we're gender nonspecific here, told me about a situation where breasts had gone wrong and it wasn't the result of tech limitations. Alex told me that their studio was very concerned with its depiction of breasts. Even so, there were stumbles along the way. Quote, the very first thing I noticed when the studio was animating breasts is I would look at them and they were just not moving in a way that was even remotely natural, Alex said. Quote, I remember saying to the artist, the breasts are moving wrong. And I remember directly asking him, have you watched breasts move? Have you actually watched breasts move? (laughs) There it is, Tom. Mark, you have to do me a favor, though. Listen, we have to be smart about this podcast. Would you put that breast physics somewhere in the title of this <laughs> when you release this? Listen, <laughs> Leonard Nimoy and breast physics are both going in the title. There you and go. Let people puzzle out that connection. <laughs> <laughs> that is Media Unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher. And while you're there, please rate the show. No, I really mean it. Rate the show. <laughs> but maybe not this episode. It helps other folks discover us. You can also catch us at SoundCloud Podcast One and now on Radio Inc. and here and there sometimes at Media Biz Bloggers. <laughs> you can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asacker and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. Hey, send us your questions and comments using hashtag Media Unplugged. If there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. You can read the show notes and share the show at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. Special thanks to the producer of Media Unplugged, Jeff Schmidt, exciting audio for media. You can find him at Jeff-Schmidt, S-C-H-M-I-D-T dot com. 
for the fantabulous, never-to-be-duplicated <laughs> Tom Asacker. I am Mark Ramsey. Thanks for listening.